here. Hello and welcome to today's bonus episode of Blockchain Insider. My name is Mauricio Magaldi and I'm joined by my co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing, sir? I am so happy to be back on this pod with just you. So this is going to be fun. Um, and yes, we're going to unpick all things Terra, Lunar and Stablecoin. So glad to be with you, sir. Absolute pleasure, pleasure. So we wanted to continue to talk about Luna and Terra as there's so much to unpack and we just scrapped the surface on our news show. And we wanted also to pick your brain, Simon, about this whole situation. So let's do some quick recap in case you missed it. Terra or UST was the most recent poster child for algorithmic stablecoins and it crashed and burned, taking the market with it. Luna did a nosedive under 0.001 dollar, losing over 99.999% of the original value and helped obviously put down every other big name cryptocurrency. So can we just start discussing a little bit how that whole ecosystem worked, Simon? How, how was the functioning between the Terra blockchain UST and the native cryptocurrency Luna. Yeah, so the irony of something called Luna that was going to go to the moon that then crashed into the ground, right? There's there's something there. So yeah, Terra and Luna are like sister tokens and coins, right? So let's just step back to all the way to stable coins in this thing before we before we talk about how it worked. Because I'm a, I'm a consumer, I have a mobile app, and I want to get a, a higher savings yield. This is what it looked like to most people. And there were a bunch of stable coins that allowed you to do that. There were apps that said, uh, you know, we'll still give you 8%, we'll give you 10%. And there was a service uh, from Anchor Protocol that was offering up to 20% yield. Wow, that's amazing. Who could say no to that? It sounds too good to be true. Turns out it, it actually was, but again, not not for some other stable coins, which are, which are still functioning in the, in the background. So that's what it looked like as a consumer. But then suddenly this stable coin where I'm holding on to something that's supposed to be equivalent to a dollar and I'm getting a 20% return on all of those dollars I save starts crashing and it goes to 90 cents and then 50 cents, then 33 cents, then 0.0000001 cents. So all of this happens... And you're like, well, that's not great. And so you've got to you've got to then contextualize it. Like, how did how did this thing actually work? To to your point, right? So, I've got this stable coin that wasn't very stable, and it was an algorithmic stable coin. And Mauricio, as we know, not all stable coins are created equal. So that's what it looked like to a consumer. I think it was important saying that first before we set the scene of like fiat backed versus asset backed versus algorithmic. Do Do you want to just take a crack at those three? Yeah. So. To separate these, right? So when we think about stablecoin, as you were saying, it's just one-to-one to to an equivalent fiat currency of choice. In these cases, it was the US dollar. And in general, the three types of stablecoins work like a centralized quote-unquote, which is I have enough equivalent real-world backing assets like dollars, like cash, like bonds and other instruments that when I have them in volume, I can issue a counterpart of that on a blockchain. You can call it tokenizing money, if you will. Like I have money in quote unquote the bank and then that money gets issued on a blockchain. So I'm tokenizing that uh, equivalent. 
Then there's the crypto-backed stablecoins, which is similar, but instead of having cash, they have other cryptocurrencies that back them up. Usually they have that in access. So if I'm issuing a dollar on a blockchain, I have more than an equivalent dollar in crypto backing that one a tokenized dollar. And then there's the algorithmic stablecoin, which is a bunch of rules between a couple of pairs of cryptocurrencies that operate in tandem. So when I issue a equivalent of $1 in the blockchain, I have another cryptocurrency that has a corresponding behavior to that, which is what uh, Luna and UST were. So when I burn Luna, I can issue a stablecoin. And when I sell a stablecoin, I buy Luna and I issue Luna. So they work kind of in corresponding pools. And that's where the magic, quote unquote, algorithmic magic happens. Algorithmic magic that um, may not always be successful. Um, but so I guess it comes back to what do I need to believe to believe this coin is stable? So I need to believe with a fiat backed or an, uh, a one-to-one -one backed token like USDC, like UST, like um, Gemini, like Paxos, uh, like BUSD, th things you may have heard of. I need to believe that there's a dollar or dollar equivalent sitting in a bank somewhere. Like, hey, uh, I'm using this token thing, but it's there's a dollar sitting in a bank somewhere, which is probably the lowest risk type of scenario. And, th and that exists, and, and it's fairly well understood, I think. The second one is this over-collateralized, all this asset-backed, which says, I need to believe that for every stablecoin worth a dollar, there's $1.5 to $2 worth of... Ethereum or Bitcoin or something else sitting in a reserve somewhere that can be sold if, if needs be to, to make sure that, that it's backed. So it's backed by something. Then algorithms are not backed by anything but themselves. So they work on that mint and burn mechanism, which is supply and demand. If there's too much supply of stable coins, then what they'll do is start uh, burning those stable coins. And the way they do that is by offering those stable coins at a discount to people who hold the sister token called Luna. So this mint and burn supply and demand should always balance itself out based on the supply and demand. But what happens if everybody goes, you know, I don't want either of those. I'm just going to sell both of them really, really freaking fast. And that's what happened. Exactly. And, and people were actually moving away from it faster than the Luna Foundation Guard, who had started to back some of that with Bitcoin, could even sell the Bitcoin. So even having millions and millions worth of Bitcoin, selling at a discount wasn't possible to actually keep the so-called pack between the reserves, the algorithm and the UST at that point. So the problem with real-time liquidity is you get real-time bank runs or real-time stablecoin runs. So if you think about uh, Bitcoin, it might take a few hours to settle or, or several minutes, and you've got a delay between this algorithm that's selling really, really fast and Bitcoin that's taking some time to sell. I've got to find a buyer for it. Who's going to buy my Bitcoin? And now imagine this in the traditional banking world, if there's a run on a stablecoin, and this is one of the things people worry about with Tether, is, um, okay, you've got all of these dollar equivalents sitting there backing Tether, 
But if somebody wants to redeem all of their tether and sell it back to you, can you sell that dollar equivalent? Who can you sell it to? How long is it going to take to sell it? Are you going to be able to give them dollars if it takes you one day, two days? Because TradFi, traditional finance, has this wonderful thing called settlement delays. So there's a few practical issues there with the new world that have been created that I think people are now starting to, to work their way through. It sounds like even time arbitrage, right? If one rail is super, super fast and the other one take, takes days, there is a time arbitrage. And, and that, of course, is going to impact the price of the assets on both sides of the equation. And I think the lesson here is if you tokenize something, you're as good as the fiat version of it. You're, like, you're always going to be limited by that in some way. There's a, there's a new project uh, that, that's come out, Flow Carbon, are parking carbon credits with an offline partner. And then what they're doing is they're tokenizing them and people can trade them and that should create demand for it. Um, but what happens if the organization that is managing those real world carbon credits decides to not work with this project anymore? So that on-off ramp between the real world and between this, this new world is going to be a really crucial point for people to start to get right. And we're seeing that play out in, in several several different ways. And I think this has impacted confidence. I mean, the the UST explosion brought a lot of schadenfreude and happy smiles in, in TradFi world who were sick of hearing about how Web3 is the future. And I think there was a little bit of sort of spirited enjoyment of it. Um, and it caught some headlines in, in the traditional finance press. But it also potentially damaged confidence in, in stable coins. Um, do, do you think that Stablecoins have a future? Uh, or is everybody a hater now? Like, should we throw the baby out with the bathwater here? I think it's important to differentiate the types of stablecoins and obviously algorithmic stablecoins, as you said, are the riskier ones. And we're seeing this. But there's a, there there's some other components that I think need to be taken into account as we as an industry mature, right? One is education. Your initial example on people on retail just seeing 20% yield and, you know, going after it with all of their money was not only a promise that the ecosystem couldn't keep up, but people didn't do their own research. We keep telling people in crypto, D-Y-O-R, do your own research. And that's the exact reason. And the, the thing is, if anyone knowledgeable enough would read the smart contracts that were operating the algorithm, they would see that this was a scenario that was possible. So yes, there is a portion of it that is damaging to all stable coins, but we need to sort them out. And that also means that we need uh, regulators to understand that there are differences. So if there's anything that the regulators can do to prevent this from happening in the future is setting up a proper framework that then uh, issuers of stablecoins could follow in, uh, in, in everywhere in the world. Because remember, this is digital, global, 24-7, and it needs to be valid for everyone involved in it. And, and I think the nuance between regulators and also the rest of the industry, like not everybody in traditional finance or fintech necessarily understands some of these nuances, but a lot of the people that have been watching the space in crypto and Web3 for some time have sort of been like, these algorithmic stablecoins look like they're going to blow up. Like this looks, this looks dangerous. This looks scary, especially anybody with any kind of TradFi background, because... 
I do think there is a desire to decentralize all of the things and try and remove human input as much as possible. And algorithmic stablecoins, in theory, should go all the way out to being fully decentralized. And perhaps one day somebody cracks that puzzle and maybe it was just early and not wrong, as which is often the case in technology. Sometimes an idea is just way too early and not ready and somebody needed to have, have some kind of big breakthrough. But the regulators sort of seeing those nuances, I guess it depends how close they are to financial services and how much history they've got. And you can see this, there was headlines with um, the Euro European Central Bank's leader, Christine Lagarde, saying that stable coins as a category are worth nothing, backed by nothing. But the IMF, who have been looking at this space for quite some years, at Davos recently said, coins that are not backed by anything can be dangerous. And I think the nuance between those two statements is really sort of demonstrating that that education journey is, is still work in progress. And the more you understand finance, the, 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 bed, the closer you, you, kind of, uh, you kind of get to it, Maurizio. So do you think that this is going to end up with guidance? I know we saw some in Europe already come out through Mika. Are we going to get equivalents around the rest of the world? So the G7 came up with that um, swift and comprehensive statement about the necessary regulation or the, needed, the need for regulation in crypto in general. And, and that was immediately in response to what's happening with uh, Terra, and I think that for, to me, that sounds like hasty and overly strict. So I would hope that regulators, especially in the major jurisdictions, would actually sit down and study this and read through everything. And I can't stop thinking about the actual personal responsibility when you are the face of such a an ecosystem like the Terra Labs founder, Do Kwan, there's, there's got to be some repercussions at, at the individual level as well, right? I agree with you that sometimes tech is early, as it as I would hope is uh, this is the case. But there's also some form of uh, individual repercussions in terms of um, credibility and reputation. And I'm not, you know, I'm not asking for penalties, but I think that there's got to be some like specific repercussions if you are actually promoting these things that are unsustainable. Yeah, this was egregious, wasn't it? There are Twitter threads with the founder of Terra Luna uh, arguing with financial journalists and saying, oh, have have good luck staying poor, and poor people tend to, to hate this. And, you know, it's really um, ill-conceived, naive at best, and at worst, just just frankly horrendous and, and kind of tone deaf to the amount of people that have lost money, lost livelihoods. If somebody out there has done the worst and, and lost a house or you know really, really suffered personally, to have somebody who's who's saying that is is just sort of so um, so unbelievably uh, egregious that I, that I do hope that lessons are learned and that we we build better safeguards when you are dealing with financial services the level of responsibility is unbelievable it's not just moving kittens around it's it's all fun when the numbers going up but when the numbers going down 
the level of responsibility of anybody offering a financial services is off the charts because you are dealing with somebody's ability to put a roof over their head and the ability to feed themselves. Like this is really, really important stuff and we should take it that seriously. That shouldn't stop us experimenting. That shouldn't stop us innovating, but it should make us think about the second and third order impacts of writing a bit of code and tweeting some stuff when the markets are going up. Like always think think these things through. I, I agree with you. Uh, it's gonna be difficult to for any regulator or jurisdiction to kind of prosecute this thing um, and kind of move forward with it because there wasn't really, it doesn't really fit into any specific category or jurisdiction neatly, which is where, again, thoughtful policy and regulation might be helpful. I do worry to that point that uh, if we sort of ban the concept of algorithmic stable coins, we're banning an innovation um, and research category that could be really interesting and really, really exciting. But it's uh, first do no harm. Like, let's figure out how we uh, limit the blast radius of innovation in this space, limit the scale of it. How long can things stay in beta? How long can things stay small? How long can you put limits on things until you have a level of confidence that things have been through a cycle? Like, could the industry, could the open source world start to voluntarily do more of this stuff? Because I think if it does, it would buy a lot of credibility in the process. I think personal responsibility for innovators is important. And I think pushing the envelope in the early stage we are in crypto is important to continue to innovate. But that doesn't mean that we, the disruptors, are not to be held accountable at some point, right? At, to some extent. But as you said about the, the degree or the size of the impact, this is still an emerging blip on the radar if we compare with the traditional markets and the sizes of things and the hundreds of trillions everywhere else, uh, but still is important, uh, which doesn't make this cool or okay for someone to actually try and find Do Kwan at his house. No, which that's happened. not cool. <laughs> so that is not cool at all. So we need to be very civil about these things if we want this to be solved at an industry level as well. Uh, and, and thinking um, of kind of what comes next, I mean, there are, there are some real concerns about Tether and its ability to stay solvent over the medium to long term, although its audits are showing that it still has plenty of plenty of backing there in, in, in recent audits, at least. Uh, but the interesting one to me is make a DAO or die, um, which appears to be rock solid and stable. So unlike uh, sort of Tether and uh, even USDC um, that has various levels of fiat backing or dollar equivalent backing, this is using crypto assets as its backing, but the way it's done it has been kind of managed in open source by a community. Anybody listening to this right now can go to MakerDAO's Discord, they can go onto their uh, GitHub pages, they can see every decision that MakerDAO is making, all of its governance, everything. This would be like if a central bank open sourced its internal governance discussions. This would be like if a bank um, board meeting happened in public. This is what's happening with MakerDAO today. You can go see that and the decisions being made, this is almost the opposite end of the spectrum to me. This is how we do transparent, open source, inclusive. And this is where we go learn. This is where we go learn about what the future could look like because that is holding its dollar peg. And people are using it for all kinds of innovative use cases. And that's what gives me optimism and hope when we come to stablecoins is this becomes another way of moving money in ways that is programmable, that's real-time, and that's composable. And that's where I get excited, Maurizio. I think you nailed one point here, which is the openness 
of MakerDAO. And the, um, the fact that it is a DAO, one of the oldest DAOs around, a decentralized autonomous organization, and doing it in the open. There is no central character or cult leader associated with MakerDAO that is tweeting anything. The community is all there on Twitter, on Discord. They're debating openly what the, uh, what the paths forward uh, are, and they built a very strong sort of almost boring baby steps to what they're trying to do that are uh, thoroughly discussed and voted on that I think moving fast is probably not what they're trying to do, but they're trying to move right. And when you do that collectively without a central character that is um, overly bearing on the community, um, I think a balanced approach or a balanced result is more achievable in seeing what, um, how the DAI responded to this sort of uh, shakeup on the market. It's kind of testament to the approach that MakerDAO is taking into turning this into a centerpiece of DeFi. They do want to become the central bank of the internet, as they say, but I think the way they're going about this as very similar to what other central banks, traditional central banks would do, which is... Let's study this, let's understand this, and then let's move forward on things that really make sense. So it's interesting how that is uh, a decentralized approach, very close to the traditional ways of a central bank. So if you're sitting in a fintech company right now, a lot of fintech companies started to look at offering uh, stablecoin yield, uh, a lot of fintech companies looking at what they should do in, in Web3, a lot of TradFi folks and, and uh, traditional banks looking at how should they enter this space. I mean, certainly, um, I've been at the Lendit conference in New York all week. I, if anything, I'm not hearing people going, oh, crypto's over. I'm hearing the opposite. I'm hearing there's more momentum than ever. Uh, people are really starting to think about self-hosted wallets. Uh, we saw Robinhood has launched their own version of a self-hosted wallet. Uh, we're seeing Revolut intends to do the same. GameStop is launching its own self-hosted wallet, which is probably not the most credible or helpful thing in the world. Uh, but should what steps should a fintech company be taking? It, 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 can they credibly go into this space? And what are some of the risks? I mean, there's risks involved in... The governance, there's risks involved in the smart contracts because the piece of technology that is immutable once it's programmable. So it's also something to be considered. And there's also risks of associating a regulated uh, entity with something that is yet to be fully regulated, which is crypto. So I think these are sort of the, the top three that, that come to mind. But I think exploring is always important if if you if you expect to continue in uh, financial services to some extent whoever you are and you're not exploring defi or the defi wallet or crypto or whatever offering that is that solves that further solves your client's problems it's very likely they're going to be um, less and less space for you in the coming years so yes we're early yes it's time to explore um but if, and if you don't, then that's 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 up to you because there's going to be people that are in this space. If we if we've seen anything to sort of be reassuring of that this is an industry, is the amount of talent moving from traditional markets regulators into crypto Web three metaverse at a dizzying pace. It's not only the VC money that's available, but the, the degree and the caliber of talent that is moving from traditional industries to uh, 
uh, Web3. We just, we just saw David Marcus taking the leap into LightSpark and building payments. And David Marcus being from Meta, uh, he ran payments and he was the guy behind Libra at Facebook. Yeah, and he was the PayPal president for a while as well. And I think these these characters moving are seeing something over the long term. So crypto prices might be down and uh, tech prices might be down, but the people who have done well in tech, the people who've done well in this space historically are doubling down right now. So uh, if you say, oh, well, terror happened, therefore it's bad, therefore we shouldn't touch it, I think that's a probably the biggest mistake somebody can make. We should be careful and thoughtful, yes, and those are two very different things, but being careful and thoughtful doesn't mean doing nothing. It means doing a lot of hard work and doing a lot of grinding and learning. Uh, one of the things I'm hearing a lot from my contacts in the industry is how many Web2 and big tech companies are starting to take this space really really seriously as well in terms of uh, their ability to use web3 wallets to not have to uh, be in the sort of same tradfi space that they were starting to get into historically and also as you and i've talked about several times Maurizio, wallet is the worst name for this thing <laughs> that we see in in web3 if if you are using uh, metamask rainbow phantom uh, insert your favorite name of of uh, bit of software here that helps me manage move assets and access the decentralized web that bit of software is very very different to what you would have considered a wallet in inside of financial services it's like this whole other thing completely different it's how i access the next version of the internet and if if in web 1.0 i had a username and password in web 2 i logged in with google or apple or somebody then there's this other thing where i'm logging in with what's now called a wallet that space is going to be huge for consumer innovation. And that space is a real question about how regulated does that come? What does the infrastructure stack look like? Is it going to be traditional fintech companies that play there? Is it going to be big tech companies that play there? Where do traditional finance and incumbents play? And also, who are the new players? That space is the next big area of competition. So Stablecoins are just one piece of a of a bigger puzzle. I I think crypto as as it's seen is one use case of Web three. So wallets are a means to enter this. What this can unlock, say, in the metaverse, we haven't seen that yet. We're we're just starting to scratch the surface on what a immersive experience that also carries ownership and identity, how that works in like in reality. So we haven't yet seen the end game. And, and to be honest, I feel this is 1991 type feeling where you're like primitive internet type stuff. Cause right now we're seeing the inner workings of this, right? The wallet is an engineering bit, right? Um, if you try and do anything and you have to connect and approve a transaction, that is a very clunky user experience. So, Web3 is not yet um, mature, and we know this because we're seeing the engineering bits in front of the users. As you wrote the other day on your FinTech Brain Food, when the technology disappears, then, then we're it, then we're there. And while we still see this hashes and the zero Xs and all of that, this is still the engineering bit, and it, it gives the regular user a poor experience. So when we see 
terror crashing and burning like it did, it kind of reminds us that, well, if, if it's a regular user seeing this, what are they thinking about it? Because are they understanding this? And while they don't understand the zero axis, they'll probably not understand what happened with Terra Luna to make an educated decision. It, it's so interesting to me that um, the one of the greatest books of all time, Crossing the Chasm, defines anybody who uh, wants to play with the new thing as being fundamentally different as somebody who needs a complete solution before they'll use anything. And so Web3 is definitely in the like early adopter, even innovator space, like 2.5% or less of the population have really, really played with that space and used it. And yet it's probably the most exciting kind of at the same time and, and interesting, but it's not for everybody. And it's, it's not for people who don't know what they're doing. And this is the whole do your own research piece and, and that will start to change. And with time, the standards or the ways we think about uh, risk and how the role that wallets have to play, should play, could play, the role that other actors could play on behalf of wallets, this could get really, really interesting. Um, I do think there's space for um, self-regulating in the industry, self-management of risk, uh, DAOs that start to think about this stuff and, uh, in aggregate on behalf of consumers and how they partner with with regulators. Um, you know, through global digital finance and uh, GBBC, there's been lots of work on, on standards. Uh, I know there's a few folks thinking about DAOs. It's an area that's particularly interesting to me. And as you say, the technology will hopefully eventually disappear. But in order to get there, this industry has to figure out how it gets thoughtful about risk. To me, like there's always a there's always a thing that has a tipping point in the system, the thing that's going to unlock the next wave of innovation. Uh, last go around, it was about institutional custody. How do big institutions buy crypto assets they're not going to do it with the same software you or i do they need they need this this institutional grade the next real thing is about compliance kyc aml but also just the risks that are not already captured by regulation if industry can think not just about what regulators want them to do, but what about consumers? What about harm? What about getting in front of that? And what about preventing those risks before the regulators even have to go whack you? That is, I think, a great place to be and the place we want to be, Maurizio. I, th I think you opened up a big avenue for regulators when you talk about this, because the same way that institutions need different architectures to handle crypto, um, consumers also do, but imagine the possibilities for the regulators themselves, right? The latency of today, I mean, if we can all agree that AML and KYC are not perfect in the traditional finance world, trying to use that framework that doesn't work in Web 2 on top of Web 3 is obviously a glaring mistake. So why not take advantage of the possibilities that these new technologies bring to the regulators themselves, right? Why, what is a KYC crypto wallet? What is a disclosure, a financial disclosure? What is a financial reporting in the world where all of the transactional data ever is available to regulators everywhere? Let's say that's a different paradigm. That's a different paradigm. Are you a regulator by seeding off chain in this web tree? I don't think so. Do you know what my favorite, um, demo is at the moment is to make things real for people by showing them uh one of the things like OpenSea 
and then going, oh, that's that's what people are using in Web3. They're using things like OpenSea. They're using applications like Steppen and Helium. And then they go, oh, wow, okay, I think I understand this now. And then you show them Dune Analytics. If you're listening, go to dune.com and check out some of the dashboards that people have built. Because all of the transactions in this space are an open public record, we have this data about how how many people are using OpenSea on a daily basis, how many people are using Steppen, what are they using it for, what have they bought within that application, what have they done within that application. That's not available for Google, that's not available for Facebook, that's not available for Robinhood, it's not available for Monzo. That data about how people are using applications is immensely valuable to regulators, but it's also immensely valuable for preventing risk and seeing what's happening in the market. And so once people see this stuff, they realize the power and the the potential of it. We've got to be thoughtful about privacy as we go forward into that. But this is going to be an exciting space. And if we are, then maybe we can prevent another terror, um, terror, terrible situation there we go um and uh and, and live the future and, and i'm optimistic Maurizio, and I, I hope we come back to this subject regularly because uh, this has been a fun conversation yeah and i would go even further we could have maybe not prevented but minimized the 2008 financial crisis a lot if all of that data uh was available like the data is available now on blockchain so here's that okay so to wrap this up Simon, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon at 11FS.com. Absolutely. You can find me at 11FS.com and also on LinkedIn, Mauricio Magaldi. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to drive the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.